we're still, I don't even know if that we're still part of the series that we started, but we are still on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I, lay, I titled this uh, lesson, The Heart of the Law, Part 1, because um, there's at least one more, but maybe two more in, in this kind of the heart of the law. And I love the way we're taking our time going through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm learning so much, and I'm seeing the different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes were one, you know, then salt and light. All this stuff is kind of flowing together, and I'm learning so much because um, y'all are going on this journey with me. We're all learning about this. And so long before the time of Christ, the scribes had de departed from that meaning of the law of Moses. Um, their lives were devoted to studying it, but they literally had fallen away from any kind of connection to the meaning of the law of Moses. They, they studied it every day. It consumed all their time. But the heart of the law was so far from them. It was just couldn't be further apart. They were, they strained, the, the, in Jesus' phrase, I guess, that he used, they strained at a gnat and they swallowed a camel. They, they would find this little thing right here, but they couldn't see this giant thing right in front of them. It just, they missed it. They were so immersed in the minutia of the interpretation of the law that they neglected the plain reading of the law and they had no understanding of its author. What man was saying and what man was thinking had replaced the thoughts of God. And for all practical purposes, the writings and the traditions of men had replaced the Holy Scriptures. Long before Jesus' day, the Pharisees as well had departed from the law of Moses, even though their claim was that they carried out every single little rule and regulation. The Pharisees had made out a long list of do's and don'ts, which only someone who could work all day long at it had the time to keep. The rest of us who had lives and jobs, we would not have had time to keep all of those things. And, and, and as always, anytime man tries to improve on something, what God has said, we end up lowering the standard to a man standard away from a God standard. And the result was only that righteousness was gone and self-righteousness took its place. And yet they claimed to be good and they claimed to be righteous. And so into this world, imagine, for a, we're going to do a little uh, study in first century Jewish life as part of this lesson this morning. But into this world and with this mindset, Jesus entered the stage. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' great exposition of the nature of true righteousness. In Matthew 5, 3 through 16, we get the Beatitudes and the salt and light. Jesus describes the characteristics. The people who are truly righteous are going to be poor in spirit. They're going to be mournful. They're going to be meek. They're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're going to be merciful, they're going to be pure in heart, and they're going to be peacemakers, biblical peacemakers. And we studied what all that stuff means. And then those that are persecuted are going to be persecuted by the unrighteous because they don't like that righteousness that they see in the people who are living for God. Then they're going to be the salt in the earth, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And they will do good deeds in a way that brings glory to God and not to me on Facebook. In, in uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus makes it plain that what he is teaching is in complete harmony with all of the New Testament. We studied that last week. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't want to throw out the Old Testament. He didn't want to throw out any of the... He, he did not want to throw out the law. He came to fulfill the law, and he lived a life of that, and we explained and we went through all that last week. And that was in contrast completely with the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And then verse 20 is really a condemnation of their self-righteousness. He said, because unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I hope by the time we finally finish the Sermon on the Mount that that scripture is emblazoned in your brain. Because I have read it every single Sunday that we've done this. I have read that scripture. If you think about this statement, Jesus is basically saying that the scribes and the Pharisees have zero righteousness. Quite the insult Jesus is hurling. But it's not meant as a condemnation here of what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. The scribes and the Pharisees, according to Jesus, are not going into the kingdom of heaven. Not unless something changes. Something has to change in them. They must exchange their self-righteousness for true righteousness. The Beatitudes describe the characteristics of a person who is truly righteousness, who is truly righteous. And in the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, and part even of chapter 7, we're still in chapter 5, guys. <laughs> um, 6 and 7 also include elements of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins now to illustrate what it means for us who are going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's important for us to see how incredibly important it was that Jesus taught us, uh, taught us this idea. We really, when you think about it, we really don't have too many of Jesus' sermons. Think about that for a second. Over his three-year ministry, Jesus had to have taught hundreds of sermons. He had to have preached hundreds of times. People were always wanting to hear the words of Jesus, but we only have a few of them recorded in Scripture. And one of the most important is this Sermon on the Mount. And the entire topic, that one of the few sermons that we have of Jesus that is recorded, the entire topic is righteousness and the nature of righteousness. Jesus has defined it, and now what he's going to do for us in the rest of 5, 6, and 7 is he's going to illustrate and make it easier for all of us to understand. Thank you, Jesus. Literally, thank you, Jesus. I need illustrations. I like it broken down into pieces that I can understand, and that's what Jesus is about to do for us. In chapter 5, there are six teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus refutes, and then he explains what true righteousness says about those preconceived notions. In each section, he begins with a phrase, and the phrases are different slightly, but, but they all mean the same thing. He says, you have heard it said, and he talks about murder, in 27, adultery. In 31, divorce. 33, vows. 38, revenge. 43, loving your neighbor. And in chapter 6, Jesus condemns the way that the Pharisees practiced and told how those things should be practiced. Practiced. Each section begins with something like, when you do, or when therefore you give alms, and when you pray, and whenever you fast. Do not be like the hypocrites, is what Jesus is telling us. And he's giving us these examples. Do not be like the hypocrites. Do it this different way. When I began this sermon, uh, this series of, on the Sermon on the Mount, I said that we have to keep context in, in place. That was one of the first things I said the very first, it was back in early June, I think was the very first time I spoke on this. I said we've got to keep this in context. We do not want to remove what Jesus says from its context, context resulting in using his words to support an idea that he did not teach. Because that's what the Pharisees and the scribes did with the old law of Moses, is they took pieces out, and they all of a sudden, by the time they finished playing with them, the heart was gone. It was just, a, it was just words that they were putting in wrong places. Because that's repeating that same error that they made. We don't want to look at that little bitty minutia. 
while failing to see and follow the principle of the law, the heart of the law. And this morning, we're going to begin our examinations of the illustrations of true righteousness. And I, again, I want to keep it in context because it is a harmonious unit. Everything in the scripture is harmonious. It works together. If you see things that, that you think these two contradict each other, if you study into them, you'll find out they don't. It really is. I, you can find two scriptures that almost look like they're saying exact opposite things, but the, a careful study of the context of each one, and all of a sudden it becomes harmonious again. And God's, God's scripture is like that. It, it, it works together. And this very long sermon that we're going through is also like that. It is a harmonious unit. The pieces all go together and they must be interpreted and understood within each other. We're trying to get at the true teaching, the true heart of the law of Moses. So let's start with legalism and murder. Matthew 21, uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the... I'm going to define that word, Raka, because I didn't know what it meant either. It says, Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty of, of fiery hell. It kind of escalates quickly. Going to court, going to the Supreme Court, going to hell. <laughs> just real fast. <laughs> Jesus just went zoom right there. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way to court. While you're on your way to the court, make friends with your opponent. That, this, that's interesting. In order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. I'm going to go into, we're going to explain all this stuff. It, it's fascinating though, the way Jesus looks at all these things and, and he presents it in language that is so easy for his audience to understand. The section starts off with that phrase, you have heard it said. Jesus is not talking about the actual words of the law of Moses. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. That's who he's talking about at this point. Jesus is referring to the long line of scribes and Pharisees of past generations, the ones who've been taking the law out of context, who've been just teaching their own thoughts and principles. It is their teaching that he is going to contrast with his teaching this day. Jesus isn't contrasting his teaching with the law of Moses because he's already said, we talked about last week, everything he says is in harmony, but he's talking about the way these people have interpreted it. And notice that it says you have heard. In many respects, the common Jew of this time had become separated from the scriptures. This happened in the English-speaking world and all, the, all around the world um, at, later on as well, but it happened here in the, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish days. During and after the Babylonian exile, that's when we've, we've talked about the Babylonian exile, most of them had lost the ability to read and converse in Hebrew. We think that's really strange. But most, the average Jew in Jesus' day did not speak Hebrew, didn't understand it, couldn't read it, couldn't speak it. They used Aramaic, which was the everyday at home language. And then to do trade and, and in the shops and the businesses, they used Greek. So almost everybody was bilingual then, but it was Aramaic at home and Greek in the shops. And though, though the Old Testament had been translated into Greek, it was big, huge scrolls and no one could afford them. No one had a big scroll at home. 
People didn't have that kind of stuff. Um, it, that just was been far out of the um, financial reach of an average person. What we have on our nightstands, what we have on our, our, um, on our coffee tables, what you may have right in your hand beside you, even on our phone, that access, they didn't have anything close to anything like that. We take it for granted. And the result was that the people relied on the religious leaders to read the scriptures in the synagogue and then explain it to them. And since the people did not understand the text because they didn't have the text, they had no basis on which to judge what was being told them. I mean, you could take one scripture. If, if y'all could not read any of the Bible, I could take one scripture and I could mess everything up, couldn't I? If y'all didn't have the ability to read the rest of the scripture, you, you would, I, I could have us all out there, you know, going crazy because of one scripture if you didn't know the rest. And in addition, they had such respect for their religious leaders that they just accepted what was told. I mean, they just accepted what was told. They couldn't read to, to verify. Unfortunately, most, most of the scribes and, and, and Pharisees, they at this time also um, no longer trans, uh, translated the scriptures themselves, and they taught from the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of the writings of rabbis. It started in the Babylonian exile when people didn't have access to the scriptures. The, these Jewish rabbis would write down, it was like commentaries. It would almost be like if Brother Bruce was preaching from Matthew Shepard's commentary every Sunday instead of the Bible. Matthew Shepard's commentary is awesome. It informs the scripture, but it is not the scripture. And that's what these scribes and Pharisees were doing the exact same thing. Basically, what had happened was the tradition of men had replaced the word of God. And so it is that Jesus begins this whole section reminding the people what the scribes told them. They said, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. They had started off well, the scribes and Pharisees had, by repeating the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. But instead of explaining what that meant, they reduced everything to whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, and they stopped. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's the end of it. And you might be thinking to yourself, but that's true, Chris. <laughs> that is true. It is true. Here in the now, we do the same thing. Whoever commits murder is headed to court, right? Good thing. When someone kills someone else and they're caught, eventually their case is going, to become, uh, is going to be heard before a judge or jury to describe the proper punishment. I do that every day. I've got nine murders on my docket right now that I'm prosecuting. Nine murders. It's kind of what I do. But <laughs> it's not fun. Not my favorite thing. I'd, I'd, I'd rather prosecute a simple burglary any day of the week than a murder. But can you see how this has reduced and confined what God says about murder to just a mere legal affair? It's taken it completely into the civil sphere and away from the spiritual sphere. Yes, they are liable to the court, and that's a good thing, but God's teaching goes far beyond our civil liabilities. That's not what it's based on. You could live your whole life not violating any law other than speeding, and that doesn't make you a good person. And that's what Jesus is kind of trying to say. God's teaching goes beyond our human government. When a person intentionally kills another human for purely personal reasons, that is murder, and their life is made forfeit. That is true. Jesus has, is agreeing with that part, and that is what the scriptures say. But the reason is that murder is an attack against God. Man is created in God's image. When you commit murder, it is an attack against God. That's why murder is wrong. That's the problem, right? The shedding of innocent blood is one of the seven things God hates. Proverbs 6, 19, 16 through 19. 
Revelation 22 and 15 states that murderers will be among those excluded from heaven. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone that lie, that, this is the part, <laughs> I'll, I'll say this very quietly so you don't have to be convicted of it. And everyone that loves and practices lying. So if you didn't hear that, you didn't hear that, but it's in there, it's there. The scribes had reduced the do not kill commandment to if you commit murder, you're going to have to go before the courts. And yes, that's true. But Jesus is here to fulfill the law, right? And the scribes and the Pharisees did not deal with the cause of murder. And that's what God was concerned with. God was not concerned with the murder itself. He was looking at the cause of the murder. That was the sin problem. They felt confidence in their innocence. All, none of the scribes and the Pharisees had actually murdered someone. So they felt all self-righteous. I have never violated the sixth commandment. Look how holy I am. From the day of my birth, I've never violated the sixth commandment. And they felt confident in their innocence. They defined the sin by the external action alone. They held to the letter of the law, but not its spirit. And so in their, their self-righteous legalism, they were confident that they were not liable for any punishment. But let's look at what God says of the heart. Psalms 51 and, and 1 Samuel 16 and 7. Jesus is, Jesus is bringing to mind to the people to remember those scriptures where God looks at the heart. Jesus now goes on to destroy that self-righteousness by teaching the things that they thought it were no consequence, the anger, the calling other people names, attacking people's character, brought about more or greater danger than just the murder. Jesus strips away the legalistic interpretation of the law and he brings back the spirit. Murder is not just a physical act. It's a matter of the heart. We tend to think we are very good if we compare ourselves to some bloodthirsty murderer, don't we? I'm not like that guy. I haven't done that. But 1 John 3, 15 indicts us all. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do we somehow think we are better than those that are in jail because we, they, they killed somebody or they hurt someone? Do we think that we're better than Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer? I'm purposely being provocative here because I want you to think. I'm being provocative on purpose. I want you to think about what I'm saying. Don't think that you are better. According to Jesus, if you have ever hated a human being in your heart, you are guilty of murder. I've done exactly what Charles Manson did. I've done exactly what Jeffrey Dahmer did. Jesus explains the nature of murder in the heart in three stages. Each is increasing the hatred, and each deserves a greater punishment. Remember, we talked about the courts, the Supreme Court, and hell. But it all starts off with anger. That's the sin of murder, is anger. Jesus is bringing that out. In verse 22, he said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus says that anger with a brother brought about the same punishment as the scribes said murder did. That's, our brains are, are struggling with that, right? Our brains, that doesn't make sense. But that is what Jesus is saying. And Jesus says that anger does not just make you liable before the court, but it actually makes you guilty. Is Jesus teaching here that all anger is sinful? Nope. We know that Jesus got angry in the temple. He kicked over the tables. He did everything. He, he got rid of the money changers. He cleansed the temple. There is time, and that was my, Ephesians 4 and 6 says, we can be angry, but yet sin not. 
there is a righteous angry and maybe sometimes we do not demonstrate the anger that we should over the sinfulness that confronts us in our society. Maybe we should be angry when our nation and our culture call evil good. Maybe we should be angry when sin is celebrated as a virtue. But that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. What he's talking about is selfish anger. The selfish anger, the kind where I want something for me and so I'm going to hurt someone else to get it. Jesus is talking about that anger that rises because someone has done something against us or irritated us or displeased us. It is an anger that broods and simmers against someone else. It does not want to forgive. That's the anger Jesus is talking about. It does not want to come to reconciliation, but it holds on to its resentment. It is the seed that leads to a root of bitterness spoken about in Hebrews 12 and 5. The anger that makes you guilty before the courts. Jesus goes on to say, And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the supreme court. We get that when that anger erupts and it's expressed in cursing. That's what Raka is. It's cursing. Then you are guilty not just before the lower court, the district court. We're headed up to the supreme court now. You're super guilty. You you, you see what I'm saying? Because you're going to the Sanhedrin. This isn't just your local, in Nazareth, we're going to do our thing. This is, we're going to Jerusalem. This isn't just Baton Rouge. This is now we're going to Washington, D.C. That's kind of the idea that Jesus is, is using here. The word raka, it doesn't really have an English equivalent, but it is a term of abuse and slander. And I bet everyone in this room can imagine some English words that would fit. You may have used one on the expressway this week. But to express the anger that is in the heart with derogatory derogatory terms makes you guilty before the Supreme Court. And then Jesus goes on to say, and whosoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go to a fiery hell. I'm convicted. I am convicted. I, I look at all of you sweet people who are listening to me preach this morning, and I am convicted because I know that I have done some things like that. The levels of danger are increasing. If that anger goes beyond a derogatory expression to actually accuse the character of a person, if I start attacking their character with my mouth, then I am guilty of and deserve a fiery hell. That's what Jesus is saying. Literally, as used here, the word is the Hebrew word is Gehenna. It's the trash jump dump of Jerusalem that burned continually and so became a common term to refer to final end of torment. The word fool here is the same word we get to use where we we get our word moron from. Not all use of the word fool is bad though. Like I said with anger, not all anger is bad. The Bible tells us that a fool has said in his heart there is no God. But used in the manner that Jesus is referring to here, What Jesus is talking about is a term of slander. You're attacking a person's character and impugning of the character of a creature made in God's image is thus a slander against God himself and is the equivalent of murder is what Jesus is telling us. Look, the the Sermon on the Mount is radical. The Sermon on the Mount is radical. It is not in our normal wheelhouse. It is something completely different. So I I understand what I'm saying just sounds a little crazy in your ears, but it's the words of Jesus. When that kind of anger is present and then it is expressed with a derogatory statement or when the slander against a, a person's character is made, it is murder. See, Jesus is getting at the heart of murder and the heart of murder is anger. The sin is anger. That's the sin all along. 
Jesus said in Matthew 15 that it is from the heart that such defilements as evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders come. It's a heart matter. It's a heart matter. That is what the scribes had left out of all their teachings. They had left, all you have to do is follow this rule. Anything that goes on in your heart is your free reign. It's just what you do outside. It's just what people see. It's just dotting all the I's and crossing the T's and you're good. That's what the scribes and Pharisees had come up with. That was the system they had come up with. And it violated everything that the law was really based upon. When someone irritates you or does something against you, what is the response of your heart? Say you're driving down the road. Y'all know I love to go there. When you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off or pulls out in front of you, forcing you to change lanes quickly or hit your brakes, or someone takes the parking spot you've been waiting for, what is in your mind? What do you say? What do you think? Is there anger in your heart? They stole my spot. I do it. Do you say something? Idiot, jerk, fool. Sorry, sucker. That's mine. Worse, something worse. According to what Jesus has taught you here, according to what Jesus is teaching here, I put you in my notes, but really we are guilty of the court, the Supreme Court, and even hell. I am in huge trouble, guys. I'm in huge trouble. This concept has cut me to my very soul the past few months. I am guilty of this. I called someone an idiot in the car with my two little girls in the back seat, and they heard me. Shame on me. It's shame on me. I did it. But that person out there on the road or the parking lot or the drive-thru that's taking too long, that person is created by God. They are created in the image of God. I am calling one of God's creatures, the very image of God, a bad name. I don't know what kind of day they're having. I don't know what bad news they just got from the doctor. I don't know how preoccupied they are with the fight they had with their wife this morning. And maybe they are just rude. But they are a child of God. I owe them grace and I owe them mercy. Give them grace and mercy because that's clearly what they're in need of. Jesus died on a cross for us that we might receive his grace and mercy. Extend that to others. Now, are you starting to see how radical Jesus' teachings are? Are you starting to see just how crazy, just how insane to our brains what Jesus is saying really is? It is far beyond our own Remember, our own conception of righteousness cannot save us. It is his righteousness that we have to put on. This stuff makes no sense with my righteousness. This that I'm teaching you makes zero sense with human wisdom, human knowledge, and human heart. But with God, it makes perfect sense. All of the things that we've talked about up to this point are going to be now put into practice. I felt like a total scribe and a Pharisee. Jesus was talking about me. And you know what? He was talking about me and he was talking about us too. All of you are with me. All of us. And we will never get to the place of being able to respond like this that Jesus is calling us to if we are not righteous like the Beatitudes tells us how to be. 
Jesus did not stop with correcting the teaching of the scribes, but he went on to describe and illustrate what God wants from us. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember what your bro- that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. When anger rises, and, and that scripture is illustrating the anger. That's where it starts, a little seed of, of, of bitterness. But we'll have a little seed of bitterness, and we'll come to church. We didn't resolve the bitterness, we just came to church. So Jesus is kind of going back to step one. When anger arises, relationships are broken. They are broken between man and man, but they are also broken between man and God. This way and this way, relationships are broken. And those relationships have to be reconciled. The religious leaders were in the same trap that we find ourselves in when we have done something that is less than God wants of us. We think we'll do a good work and make it all better. We'll, we'll do it. We'll fix it. Rather than correcting the real problem, the root of the problem, we think we can fix it by doing something good and thereby balance it all out. See, that's human wisdom. That's a human mind, human heart thinking. We can correct a wrong by doing right somewhere else. If we're wrong, then maybe we can do some other religious activity. I'll, 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 I'll pay off the Family Life Center. That'll get me into heaven, won't it? King Saul thought so. King Saul did this exact thing in 1 Samuel 15. He was told by God to utterly destroy Amalek. That was a city that was, was giving a lot of problems to God's people. And, and he said, and, and God said, destroy everything. Sweet, like, I mean, just all the way to the dirt. And instead, Saul spared some of the best animals. Well, that's not what God said, is it? When the prophet Samuel confronted Saul on his failure to obey the Lord, Saul said the animals were meant as a sacrifice. Oh, I was going to bring them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to you, O oh Lord. Samuel responded to Saul, oh, this scripture right here will cut us to the heart. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, to, heed, to listen, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and insubordination is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. When you know that someone has something against you, you do not think, do not think you can make it up by coming to church. It is as David said in Psalm 66 and 18, If I hide iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. God will not accept your worship until you try to reconcile. You're only responsible for your side of the street. You can't make them reconcile, but you do have to try. Sharon, you know where I'm going with that. that we talk about that a lot. That's, our, that's, something our, that's a CR concept, but it's a biblical concept. We keep in mind that it takes both parties to accomplish reconciliation, but we're to be diligent in doing our part. Paul says in Romans 12 and 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as your responsibility goes. If you remember that someone has something against you, and note here that that means regardless of whether you did anything wrong or not, but if you think they do, go try to make it right. Until I try. That's the thing, guys. You don't have to make the peace, but you have to try. Because until I try, then what this scripture is telling me is my worship will not be acceptable to God. 
if my wife and I, we did not this morning, but had we had a spat this morning, I better make it right before we pull in that parking lot. I better apologize even if I think I was right because I've got to make it right before I walk in here. He will not hear my worship. He will not accept my worship when I've got a root of bitterness in my heart. And the final two verses of this section emphasize the urgency of seeking that reconciliation. Jesus says in 25 and 26, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you are thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out from there until you have paid up the last cent. The reference here that Jesus is making is to the Roman debt courts. There were courts set up for debtors. And and a person could seek an out-of-court settlement all the way up until the matter was called in the magistrate's courtroom. You could get an out-of-court settlement. You could resolve the problem between you and him all the way until you get to the courtroom. But after you arrived in the courtroom and the judge had it in his hands, even the person bringing the suit against you could not stop the matter. You were in front of the judge, and the matter could no longer be settled. In debtor's court, if the judge ruled against you, he handed you to the policeman, and the policeman took you to jail. You stayed there until your family found out a way to pay off the debt. You could stay in there for years while they were thinking about how they could possibly pay off this debt. And what Jesus is illustrating is the urgency of asking for reconciliation sooner rather than later. Do it before you see the judge. In the first illustration, the question of whether you had done wrong or not was sort of left unanswered. But in this one, this one, you've done wrong. You clearly are being brought before the judge. You had offended. And before you could seek reconciliation, because if God calls us into account, we're going to pay the full price. Imagine, that's the thing. The the before we get to the judge is life. Getting to the judge is not life. It's the end of life. We have to pay the full price. I love how Jesus' standard of righteousness is so incredibly different than what we as human beings would have come up with on our own. It is also, and I will be the first to admit it, it is also incredibly impossible for us to do with human power. It's almost like Jesus, listen, this is my... This is it right here. This is what I want want you to get. It's almost like Jesus is making it so foreign to us that we are forced to come to him to accomplish it. His standard is impossible with my abilities. But when I start to approach him like the Beatitudes talks about, when I get poor in spirit, I have nothing to offer you, O God. When I start to mourn over my own sin, and I know that there's no good in me, and I need you, then I start to hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? And all of a sudden, what was so hard with this human ability, he gives us his strength, and it becomes easy. His way is different, and his way is better. Jesus contrasts that true teaching of God with that of the legalism and the self-righteousness of the scribes. You cannot think you are good because you have not murdered someone. You cannot think you are good just because you have not murdered someone. 
If you have ever had selfish anger, if you have ever called someone a derogatory name, if you have ever slandered someone's character, then the judgment against you is the same as murder. The judgment against me is the same as murder. Nobody in this room is innocent. Except maybe Sister Donna. When I have more time, I'll tell you about the time I threw away her wedding ring and she still loved me. But as for the rest of us, and Sister Donna, none of this is for you. For the rest of us, we are all guilty before the court. We're all guilty before God. You aren't so good that you don't need this divine plan of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. We all need it. Every single one of us needs this plan of righteousness. That is why the characteristics of true righteousness as described in the Beatitudes, it starts out with being poor in spirit and being mournful. When I recognize my guilt before him and I cry out for his mercy, oh, that's the first thing. I just got to recognize I ain't perfect. Man, a bunch of us are in denial. A bu- don't, don't jab your wife. Don't jab your husband. We recognize our guilt before him and we cry out for his mercy. He reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, paying the penalty of our sins on the cross. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are to be therefore ministers of reconciliation. Jesus' way is so different than our way. And in purely human terms, it is beyond just hard to do. It is impossible to do. And yet he has done all of the work. He has made it so that we can be righteous. I want us to take what has just been said in these passages of scriptures. I want you to take this so seriously this week. I want you to think about it in every interaction you have with another human being your wife, your children, your husband, your co-workers, the people at Taco Bell. I want you to think about these scriptures in every interaction you have. If you are here today also, and you know that somebody, and this is going backwards, if you are here today and you know that somebody has something against you, or you know that you have offended someone and that you, you need to do something to reconcile that situation, you know what I'm talking about. If you know there is a situation in your life that has still got a root of bitterness in it, please make that right. If that person is here today, then as soon as we're done, go find them. Go find them and make it right. If that person is not here, if they're at home, go do it when you get out of church this afternoon. If it's somebody at work, go do it as Monday morning, 8 o'clock, as soon as you get there. It doesn't matter what people think when you walk up and say what you need to say. It matters what God thinks. Seek forgiveness and give forgiveness. I know I'm risking having people stop coming to this service. I've said some and taught some things that I know has made people uncomfortable. It's made me uncomfortable. I hope and pray that it has made you uncomfortable. We don't come to church to have our worldview affirmed. We come to church to be confronted with his worldview. I looked so Christian when I started drinking. I looked so Pentecostal. I was just the perfect one. Do you know, I I, I taught Sunday school drunk. 
because I was doing everything on the outside. It was all exterior. There was no changed heart. And God was only looking at the heart. He didn't even see all that extra stuff. All he saw was the heart. I looked so Christian. I wish somebody had made me uncomfortable. And so some discomfort in church is a good thing. I don't want to make anybody here uncomfortable because you feel shame or guilt. I would never put that on you because I know what it feels like. I want you to feel uncomfortable because you are realizing that on your own attempts at righteousness, you just will never measure up. We'll never measure up on our own. Uncomfortable so that you begin to cast aside your own attempts to be righteous and start to dig into the Beatitudes. That kind of righteousness is what we can dig into. I want to challenge you because all this that we have been talking about is challenging me too. We can be truly righteous Christians. We can be in the kingdom. Let Christ Jesus perform the work in you. Let the gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit then begin to sanctify you and teach you all the things that you need. Teach you everything that is true, unadulterated, pure, 100% Christianity. It will change you and it will change the whole world. Not only will you become a great Christian, not only will you stop, stop thinking you're not saved or stop worrying about how saved am I or did I do enough right or wrong, not only will all that fix itself and you become confident in Christ, but also people will see it in your face and they will want to know what you have. All of a sudden it won't be, well, the church is full of hypocrites. It'll be, man, those people in the church are changed. That's what people will begin to see in us when we take on this pure Christianity. Let the Beatitudes begin to change you. Let it begin to work in your heart and let it come out the other side. A life that is committed to Jesus Christ in everything. It's His upside down gospel makes no sense right now. But when you start living that way, it will make perfect sense in Jesus' name.